Hello and welcome to TBR Book Dive. My name is Marcus Matheny. I am Sarah Humphreys, and today we're talking about getting... Okay, so Sarah, hey, we have... This is perhaps a strange thing to start the podcast off with, because if you are a listener, chances are you will be listening to this in chronological order. I would hope so. This will... At the very least, this is the, probably the first episode of Give Me in the Ninth's review you're listening to. Maybe you hop around later. So you should know, if you're coming at this from the future, that we did a lot of learning by doing in terms of the technical side of this. We're doing our own audio engineer work here, which resulted in the first... We recorded this chunk of this first nine chapters of Gideon the Ninth, uh, some month and a half, two months ago, between vacations and the other episodes and et cetera, et cetera. And it was completely unusable for multiple bad. reasons. <laughs> uh, it was very poorly structured. It, the audio, I'm sure, was bad because we had a lot of issues figuring out my audio. Now those problems, we have a structure and those audio issues have been fixed to a much more reasonable point. So while that will not be case, the case going forward, we're having to re-record today's episode. And you will probably, the future idioms of episodes of Gideon the Ninth will have lower audio quality for me, especially. We'll talk about, I'll, I'll, it'll be in the intro of the future episodes to remind you. Uh, sorry, but if you're listening at the beginning of the show, I feel like they're all a little bit like this, even though perhaps not to this degree of badness it was it was mostly just chaotic <laughs> too too chaotic yeah we yeah. we didn't have the structure of how to organize the stuff so uh so normally we will not have read the entire at least both of us will not have read the entire book before we record we usually mm -hmm. i think a lot of times it'll probably be one of us has read the book but not the other um, or perhaps one has read it, or maybe both have read it, but wasn't read it in a long time, or something like that. Mm -hmm. So while it will be common that one of us has read it before, we usually read it in mostly the same order. Like, we're not reading the entire book and then doing the recap of chapter by chapter. But today, that is going to be the case. We're going to keep it We're going to keep it to this chunk as much as possible. We talk about it the normal amount, um, best we can. But that's kind of the situation we're dealing with today. <laughs> and if that bothers you, then... Skip this episode. <laughs> skip this. Go straight into the second episode of the book, <laughs> which will be extremely confusing, I imagine. Yeah. Unless you read it. Maybe Unless you read re it. Yeah. Read it first, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, just read the goddamn book, people. Yeah. Jesus. Oh, I feel like we're going to stick to it pretty well. I have yeah. excellent notes. I'm quite a professional. <laughs> yeah, we are we are professional professional amateurs, so this will be fine. <laughs> that translates to huge nerds. Um <laughs> <laughs> truly, truly. Uh all right, so getting in the ninth, let's kind of talk about the book as a whole since we're going into it for people who haven't read it. Getting in the ninth has gained some social media popularity over the past couple of years. I actually caught it a little bit before the cusp of it happened, although it's kind of funny how I ended up there. I was 
A few years ago, I quit my full-time job where I was essentially a law office gopher. I was doing a lot of driving paperwork to the various courthouses. And so I was in the car a lot. I was listening to a lot of audiobooks. And then I quit that job and found I wasn't listening to audiobooks anymore. I was like, I have to cancel my Audacity subscription. But I have these two credits that I need to use to keep. And I have discovered that while there are a lot of books I like that I do not like listening to on audiobook. Um, a lot of the prose that's meant to be more transparent, I just don't think translates as well to audiobooks. Like, I don't usually do Brandon Sanderson books on audiobook, for that example, just because I don't really feel like, I don't feel like it's a good marriage. It's a good medium for the books. So I was on the fantasy subreddit, which is... Great, surprisingly great place on the internet and Reddit in general. It's one of the friendlier places to women on Reddit that I have found in my experience. Not perfect by any means, but that's my experience. There are uh, unfortunately few of them. But I looked for a post. I was like, what are good audiobooks specifically? And there were a few that had been mentioned before that I had read before a few I knew, and then someone was like, do the the uh, Locked Tomb trilogy by Tamsin Muir. And I was like, okay, sure, fine. That works for me. It was literally just like, I'm canceling this. I'm just going to buy two books and see what happens. So I bought Gideon and Harrow the Ninth because those I had two credits and those were the ones recommended. Did not touch them for well over a year. And then, I don't remember. Oh, my sister-in-law, uh, Eliza, I think, recommended like, hey, these books are really good. You should read them. And I think she recommended them to Aaron. And then Aaron was like, yeah, she recommended these books to me. And I was like, why does the name sound familiar? (laughs) And I I went in and I was like, I already own these books. (laughs) So then I started listening. I binge listened to Gideon. I loved it. Absolutely. It is one of my favorite books. It's been such a joy to dive back into it with you, to read it over again, because this is a series that has a lot of foreshadowing and things. Mm -hmm. Uh, I caught a piece of foreshadowing rereading the first few chapters for the first time or for the third time just now that will not is not a big deal and will not be super relevant. It won't be relevant to this book at all, but it's just it's layered with a lot of stuff. And it's been a joy to walk back through it, especially talking it through with you, reading it, who is reading it with fresh eyes. But um, yeah, Gideon is, I do think it's very important since this is kind of becoming a social media phenomena. I know it is a book talk favorite. Book talk loves it. <laughs> Every time I say the phrase book talk word, I guess it's one word. Yeah, it's one e- word. Yeah, it's a every time I say the phrase book talk, I feel extremely old. <laughs> I need you to know. Uh, I mean, to be fair, I, I love book talk. Uh, it is primarily women in their like 30s and 40s. <laughs> OK. Yeah. Uh, which I I love so much. Honestly, book talk's pretty good. It's one of the safer spots on the Internet. <laughs> I'm not downloading TikTok, but great. <laughs> Well, book talk, I may not participate in you, but you have my (laughs) seal of approval, at least from Sarah's description. I love book talk. And I also love this book, and I love that book talk loves this book. The reason I was talking about this was to say, I I do think there is a danger when a book becomes popular, because Mm -hmm. so oftentimes in the game of telephone across social media, when information is transmitted, it'll be like, you should read this book because these are the things I love about them. And then that becomes, Mm -hmm. you should read this book because it has these cool things. And then it becomes, you should read this book. 
And so you get people going into the book having a lot of times no real knowledge of what it's about or yeah. an incorrectly transmitted knowledge. I do not think Gideon the Ninth, the entire series, is for everyone. And I think you should probably kind of be aware of what kind of book it is going into it. It is very, very well-crafted trash. <laughs> and I think I I could not find this quote, but I believe I've read where Tamsin Muir has said that she basically wrote the books she wanted to read when she was in high school that didn't exist yet. So it is a pulpy, homoerotic meme fest set in a haunted house uh, with a bunch of really cool... Every every character in the book, I'm pretty sure, is queer in some sort of way. And those things are not going to be for everyone. Some for prejudice reasons. Some people just don't vibe with queer people because of, you know, homophobia, etc. Uh, some people also just don't vibe with pulpy fiction, even mm -hmm. with stuff that's well-crafted. I love the movie Pacific Rim. I know people who <laughs> hate it. And I think Gideon the Ninth is, while not quite to that degree, I think it's the same kind of idea in that there's some stuff in here that's like, it's going to take some people out of the story. There's legit 20th, 21st century memes in this book, mm -hmm. as we will talk about. And uh, that's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. I think that's okay. I at the very least think you should be warned about it going in. The other warning I think you should have is um, my sister-in-law previously mentioned Eliza. I don't know if someone told her this. I don't know if this was an assumption she made, but she was under the impression that this book was a romance. And while this book is extreme, that's why I don't describe this book as being the more popular tagline, which is lesbian necromancers explore a haunted house, which is an excellent tagline and is basically what happens in this book. But the word lesbian, I think more to our society more than anything else implies that there is a romance between two women that happens in this book. And while there are flirtatious, especially elements, um, romantic elements to it, this book is not a romance. Mm -mm. Do not expect a romance from this book. And uh, I, I believe Eliza said that the ending wrecked her for that reason. It wrecked <laughs> me. I was not expecting a romance. Um, Sarah knows what I'm talking about. We, you, the listener, will either know what I'm talking about already or we'll get there in uh, a few weeks. Yeah. But, yeah, I think that's what you should know going in. I mean, you think yeah, I, going into this book, the literal only thing I knew about this book, honing in on past Sarah, was spooky lesbians in space. And before we started reading it, because we... Um, Charlie, my spouse, bought them after you and Aaron recommended them to Charlie. And they still haven't read it yet. And I am mad about that. It's fine. But yeah, on the front cover, it's Lesbian Necromancers Explore a Haunted House in Space, right? Or a Haunted Mansion in Space. Or, uh, haunted and I was, Gothic Palace, to be that, precise, by yeah. Charles Strauss, who I don't know who that is. But he provided an excellent tagline. But I was like, that is the most perfect thing I've ever heard. Uh, Charlie did have to let me down easy and tell me that there is no smut uh, and it is not a romance. And I did deeply appreciate knowing that going in because I think I would have been, it's really hard when you expect something from a book 
and the book is really, really good, but it doesn't hit that expectation, so you don't really know how to feel about it. And I'm so happy that that didn't happen to me with this book, because speaking from hindsight, I I really loved it, and I was very excited to read it. It's a good first book. (laughs) No, that's that's real. Uh, And sometimes it's also like, sometimes you're just not in the mood for a certain style of book. Yeah. This book is, for a book involving a lot of horror elements, it's... To me, very cozy in a weird way. Yes. Yeah, is cozy horror a thing? Actually, I think that we did talk about that in our first recording of this episode. Oh, uh, that's funny. Either either this episode or the next one. Yeah, I cozy horror doesn't sound like it makes sense, but that's how I would describe this book, too. The one thing is I don't know how to pronounce any of the names. That's That's true. And I will not get better at it. No, you do. You slowly get better. Uh, but yeah, That's there are. <laughs> I know that is true. There are certain characters whose names you completely mispronounce when they are first introduced. And then the by the end, time. you are pronouncing them correctly. There are some characters who you do not pronounce their names correctly through this entire book. And hope some of those characters may or may not survive into Harrow. And so hopefully for the next book, which we have not read yet, I'm very excited to get to it. Um, Hopefully into Harrow, I will finally get to pronounce them correctly. Because this was actually my next note. As I mentioned, I listened to them on audiobook. Our Mm. read-through was the first time I had read them in print. And I was very surprised at some of the names, how some of the names are spelled. Also, in what is confusing to me i don't know how being an audiobook narrator works first of all so i just like to say that i do not have the voice for it i am fully aware of that this weird like raspy slightly southern voice of mine will not contribute to audiobook narration i'm aware of that and i'm not going to pull stephen king stephen king for those who don't know the audiobook narrator who read the dark tower books i believe Mm-hmm. Uh, passed away around the fifth book, I want to say. And so Stephen King finished out the series reading them himself. And while I have not listened to the audiobook versions of the Dark Tower series, the general uh, consensus on them is that he is not a good audiobook narrator. Some some authors can. Yes. Can do it. Neil Gaiman. Uh- <laughs> Neil Gaiman is fantastic. Mary Robinette Kowal, who yeah. also does audiobook narration for other authors as well, is also fantastic. I've uh I listened to the excerpt from uh, Legends and Lattes and he did his own audiobook and it was actually really good too. And I and I don't like audiobooks personally. They are reading, just to clarify, that's a stand I'll die on that hill. But I I think we had I think last time we recorded this first podcast, we'll maybe stop referencing the first podcast. No. I don't know. <laughs> uh I think that podcast was when I learned that some people think listening to audiobooks isn't reading. Oh, yeah, that is when that happened, because then I went and talked to your other D&D group, and I was like, I feel really bad because I introduced Marcus to the idea that some people think that audiobooks don't count as reading, and they're like, why would you do that to him? And I was like, I didn't know! <laughs> I can accept the fact that people have stupid opinions, okay? Uh, I'll <laughs> no, say know. it. If you, if you think that and you're listening to this podcast, that's a stupid opinion. 
that group of people really enjoys heckling me and in a way that I love deeply. So having known those people for over a decade, well over a decade now, that doesn't sound right at all. (laughs) (laughs) They're some of my favorite people. (laughs) They'll probably be listening to this podcast. Shout outs. Hi guys. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, there's a book we're talking about. Um, I listened to the audiobook version, first of all. So Mm -hmm. there are some notes about how I thought characters' names were spelled completely differently than they ended up being. Some of which were like, it's a 50-50 shot, and then other ones I'm like, what the hell? (laughs) The other note is that technically, Tamsin Muir has a pronunciation guide in the back of this book. Some of the pronunciations between the audiobook narrator and that pronunciation guide are different. And I don't really... That's what I was trying to say is like, I'm not an audiobook narrator. I don't really know how that process works. I know it is a surprisingly common thing. Famously, the Wheel of Time books have two narrators, Kate Redding. I have completely forgotten her last name and Michael Kramer, I want to say. Two legendary audiobook narrators. These are like the crema crop. They're married in real life. They're both audiobook narrators. They are recording a series that by the time Wheel of Time went into audiobook, there was very high status because audiobooks, I don't think, were a thing in the late 80s, early 90s when the book started being published, right? So you would think that they would pronounce all the characters' names the same, right? No, that is what I have heard. I've not listened to them on audiobook again. So all that is to say, that's not relevant really to what we're talking about today. If I say a pronunciation and it's incorrect, I will try to push us to the audiobook narrations because that's what I'm with and i'll be wrong and sarah i will try to gently correct you and try to not so gently not adopt your pronunciations which i think i've mostly succeeded at i think you have so far yeah there's time to fill (laughs) there are less characters from from gideon on out there are more characters in gideon than there are in other books (laughs) i i need to clarify right here up top that this is the first time in at least 10 years that I have not read a book in a vacuum because all, all of the reading that I've been doing large, like really my whole life uh, has been like just me reading that thing. Except for like class assignments. I'm ashamed to admit how I pronounced some of the names like in twilight even. So I just, I don't know how names are spelled and (laughs) how to pronounce them. It just doesn't compute. It's fine. There are so many words, not proper nouns as much, because I don't say proper nouns from books mm-hmm. out loud a lot. Yeah. There's just not really a context for most of them. But there are so many words I have learned only through reading and have not heard said out loud yeah. or have heard said out loud and assumed they were completely a different word. I did not know for many, many years mm-hmm. that the phrase hors d'oeuvres and the phrase that is spelled ors devours are the same and you <laughs> yeah. pronounce that hors d'oeuvres mm-hmm. for many years like i learned that in my late 20s so yeah. i'll say i'm anti-shaming people because they don't know <laughs> how to pronounce words they've read perfectly some people would rather read books than talk to people and i'm one of those people so. <laughs> i'm also one of those people and here we are talking about a book which is That's why great. this works <laughs> We should probably start talking about the book now. Deal. Um, <clears throat> you did the recap for chapter. 
Yeah. Sure. Uh, very briefly at the very at the beginning, we get uh, a couple things that I just wanted to touch on, or we have notes to touch on. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a dramatis personae section, which just has a list of the characters for this book. There are a lot of characters in this book, many of which have most of which have important roles to play to the plot. So it is very nice that this little character list is here because I think you mentioned several times when we were recording that you had to flip back and reference things. Yeah, mostly just for the first couple of chapters. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of characters in here. A couple of notes. Our our heroine, our main character's name is Gideon Nav, first of all. I assumed that Nav was was spelled more like Nave, having a K in front. It's not. It's N-A-V, just like Navigator truncated. I also thought, I don't know if we even meet. No, we do meet this we character do. in yeah. this junk. But uh, Protessa Lawis is a character we're going to meet later. He's not a big character in the grand scheme of things. I assumed Protessa Lawis was two words, something like, P-R-O-T-E-S-S space allow S. No, mm-hmm. it's one word. P-R-O-T-E-S-I-L-A-U. I was having to look up that spelling for every single <laughs> recap or note I made about this character. Oh, uh, I just until wrote the pro. End of the book. That's, that was a better idea. Yeah, I just wrote pro. <clears throat> I did the same thing for um, Babs, who I think we also meet in this chunk. I think I also did the same for Babs, but that's because... Look, yeah, I literally never put Nabirius. I was just like, eh, it's Babs. Well, Nabirius I know yeah. how to spell, but it's spelled differently than I think. It's got like an uh, A in there. Yeah. I think it's Nabirius turn. Anyway, that's enough talking about characters that you guys have not met yet. Um, you will. By the end of yeah, this Yeah, you will soon. <laughs> the only other thing is, in between the Dramatis Persona right before we get a little poem about uh, the various houses. There are nine houses in this uh, world setting. Um, The first house being reserved for the immortal god emperor of mankind. That's not just a Warhammer 40k reference. That is also (laughs) a carrot. That is a premise of this book, as we you are about to learn. So there are eight houses basically of royalty and nobility, and they all have certain goals or I guess roles handed down to them by this emperor and so we get a little poem at the beginning are you gonna read it i was not planning on reading it do you want me to read it uh if one of us is gonna read it it has to be you because arthur stole my book so okay you don't have to <sighs> yep here we go <clears throat> two is for discipline heedless of trial Three for the gleam of a jewel or a smile. Four for fidelity, facing ahead. Five for tradition and debts to the dead. Six for the truth, over solace and lies. Seven for beauty that blossoms and dies. Eight for salvation, no matter the cost. And nine for the tomb, for all that was lost. It's really good. I love a poem at the beginning of the book. (laughs) I was raised on the Redwall books, and so I love the shit out of an in-universe poem. Yeah. I don't know what did it for me. It might have been Redwall. I'm not sure. Yeah. I was talking with Sarah about this right before we recorded, but man, the seventh house gets such a shit deal in that poem. (laughs) Everyone else gets, like, jobs, and then the seventh house, it's like, okay, you get to be pretty and then die. I mean, they're necromancers. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) 
tracks, I, I guess. All of them are necromancers, and all of them get more to do except be pretty and die. I guess that's fair. I guess that's fair. But yeah, little foreshadowing for the various characters in various houses, mm-hmm. many of whom will not really become relevant in this ch- section. But it's a yeah. fun little thing. It's at the beginning of the book, and we are at the beginning of the book. That's so. the beginning of the book, and we are at the beginning of the book. So let's yep. dive into chapter mm-hmm. one. So, uh, recap. This is a very hefty chapter. We are introduced to our heroine, Gideon Nav, a meat-headed warrior teen who likes porn mags and is trying to escape her home. Set home is Drearbur, an aptly named dreary bird on an alien planet ruled by the House of the Ninth. The planet is also usually just referred to as the Ninth House. Gideon has a precise and measured escape plan involving waking up pre-dawn and ascending an emergency staircase in absolute darkness. Before she leaves, she does visit her mother's tomb out of sentiment because her mother is not there anymore, is what Gideon says. Drearbur's bells summon everyone, which is apparently noteworthy uh, to Gideon. She doesn't go. And the Ninth's Marshal, a geriatric bowling ball of unpleasant aggression named Crux, tries to bring Gideon back home before a shuttle arrives that she's summoned to take her away. Gideon offers him porn to let her go. Crux is affronted. He demands she return, but ends up leaving without a fight when Gideon refuses. Later, her sword teacher, another geriatric woman who with a dysfunctional leg named Iglamine, shows up. Unlike Crux, Gideon clearly respects Iglamine, but still refuses when her teacher asks her to return. Iglamine also leaves. Here we're treated to some exposition. Gideon is an orphan. Um, her mother crash-landed on the ninth, dead, uh, with the newborn Gideon contained in a small pod to keep her alive and safe. Um, spirit callers tried to summon Gideon's dead mother to ask, what the hell? But after a lot of effort, all they got out of her was the name Gideon said three times. So they named the baby Gideon. Uh, baby Gideon was adopted into the ninth house, and a couple of years later, for reasons not a or for reasons yet unexplained, Gideon would be one of only three living children in the ninth house, an older boy herself and the infant heir of the ninth house. She tried to escape over 80 times, starting when she was four years old. There's so much in the first there chapter. There was so much in that chapter I had to skim over. I love the first chapter. <laughs> it's It does everything a good first chapter needs to do, which is... Basically introduce a lot of things and not explain any of them. Mm-hmm. I don't want any explanations as to what's going on in the first oh. chapter. Not in depth. I just, I want to be teased. I want the first chapter to tease me and arouse <laughs> me. But not, <laughs> anyway. You needed uh, need to draw you in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to be seduced by the book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's no smut in this book. <laughs> There's there's no smut in this book, but apparently I'm bringing a horny energy today. Apparently. Uh, so is Gideon. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I like to look at the first sentence of a book when I start a new book. It tends to get a lot of focus and care by authors because it's the first thing anyone reads in the book. And there's kind of an art to drawing people in. It can go overboard. There's some very bad purple prosy first lines, which can indicate the book's future quality. Thankfully, this one is not purple, but uh, I'm going to dive into it. In the myriadic year of our Lord, the 10,000th year of the King Undying, kindly Prince of Death, Gideon Nav packed her sword, her shoes, and her dirty mag 
And she escaped the House of the Ninth, which is a great first line, first of all. Yeah. I wrote down that we have kind of three things being introduced here. First, setting. This is definitely not the world we're used to. This is, we're not on Earth. We get hints as to the religion of the world because the King Undying and Kindly Prince of Death sounds liturgical and religious as hell. And apparently being the Prince of Death is a good thing, question mark. That's different. And uh, we will learn this world of necromancers has a weird religion compared to what we're used to. Second, we have Gideon and she's running away, which tells her stuff about her. We can also see what she treasures. The The things she brings are her sword. So she's a fighter, at the very least an aspirational one. We learn that she's more than aspirational soon. Her her shoes and then her dirty magazines, which in addition to just being the kind of funny, uh, this isn't what you expected the third item to be, also proves that Gideon is A, a horn dog, B, <laughs> different from our bog standard hero, and then C, probably different than uh, a lot of female characters to reading in fiction. The the way I have heard I have seen Gideon depicted, the uh, fan art community, as Aaron has showed it to me, seems to have embraced drawing Gideon as basically female redheaded Johnny Bravo. And the best. <laughs> it's perfect. It's the perfect depiction of her and kind of perfectly sums up uh her character. She's not as dumb as Johnny Bravo, but she brings a very meaty to things. And we get hints to that here. So we have a relatable lowercase Q queen running away from some shitty place that worships an immortal guy. Great. (laughs) That's all I need to go in. We've got a lot of showing, not telling. Well, I mean, we've got some telling, but a reasonable amount of telling. And all of that is packed into a tightly edited craft to show the setting and character and humor. And what I've written down is, baby, we've got a first sentence stew going. Yeah, the first sentence is really good. As soon as I read it, I was like, all right, this this book has me. <laughs> uh, I'm sold. I also think that it's really lovely that one of the first things she does, like, as she's escaping, is that she visit, visits her mom. I mean, like, at least symbolically visits her mom. Mm-hmm. I like that. It leaves you questioning about what happens to the people in this world when they die. Like, why is her mom not in the tomb in her, like, place of rest? I mean necromancy probably but maybe not and then coming in totally blind i i just like the fact that there is a space for her mom's body feels like something weird happened right i do also really love setting up gideon as a character uh even past that first sentence uh like she's escaping but she's not worried or in a hurry we get the quote gideon never ran unless she had to which is so relatable because me too i really really (laughs) hate running uh but i like that we can assume that she's confident if not arrogant and or cocky um i I like the detail of she leaves uh her like handcuffs or whatever on the on her pillow and the quote is like a chocolate in a fancy hotel and i think that is so funny (laughs) because she's like yeah stop me what are you gonna do so i i just like that that sets her up as sassy and full of contempt and a little bit of world building and the color of the sky i i love this first chapter (laughs) yeah uh the the color of the sky is described as like i don't have the exact quote written down Mm -hmm. but like kind of the atmosphere seems to be thinner than our Earth atmosphere. Yeah. Which, again, it's cool. We're in a weird place. They're underground. Yeah, they had, they live underground. And I I love, love this book. Love what it does. 
we get a lot of description of Gideon escaping. I, I, I just briefly mentioned a couple things. There's a lot more of it. Yeah. Uh, basically what you need to walk away from knowing is that Gideon has planned this out as thoroughly, I think, as one can plan this out. Mm-hmm. So we're shown, and this is kind of what I was saying, like Gideon is not a scholar. She's not what I would describe. As, she's not a stereotypical intelligent character in fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll meet some of those later on. But she is clearly competent at what she does, even if those things aren't necessarily valued as much by the world as a whole. Yeah. Um, she's not a necromancer, which is a problem or, you know, not what you would like someone to be. Uh, something else I wrote that. So going to her mom being in her tomb, what I wrote down is that uh, I think we get hints at it in this chapter and then revealed in the next couple. There are a lot of skeleton laborers in the ninth mm-hmm. house skeleton farmers, et cetera, et cetera. And so the tomb visit is actually her not being in the tomb means two different things. First of all, it means her body is presumably being reused as a skeleton laborer. I don't think we get any confirmation of that, but it seems to be the reasonable conclusion, at least. Yeah. Since her mom isn't listed as being there, I guess her skeleton could be there, but I think it's reasonable to assume it's not. But also later in the chapter, we learn that, uh, as I mentioned, uh, mom crash landed and died. And even though there is necromancy in this world and there are people who can call the ghost of people to ask them questions and things, Gideon's mom could not be held down as easily. It it was described as taking a lot of effort by a lot of the spirit calling nuns to uh, get Gideon's mom to say the name Gideon three times. Right. Which, of course, they then name her baby because, obviously, she can only talk about her child. Yeah, I would Sorry, love I for you to talk. I do have beef with this. <laughs> no, I, I was just about to say, please, please talk about this again because I think this, yeah. was, this was an extremely insightful comment from last time. Yeah, I don't have a lot of beef with, like, this book in particular, but there, there are so many things, like, both in media and in our society in general, where it's just like, oh, well, you're a mom now, and that's all you are. (laughs) So I I just think it's kind of funny. I I think the way it's presented in this book is kind of funny, because it's like, it it feels kind of self-aware, I guess, where it's like, yeah, she said Gideon, so they were like, guess that's her name, (laughs) you know? But yeah, a a lot of moms just kind of get, like, reduced to just being a mom and not like a full person or a full character and there are so many fantastic female characters in this book that i don't feel like that's like a sin of this book but yeah it it do be a thing (laughs) i mean they what we're doing here is we're introducing one of the central mysteries because i think there's a lot of question i think it's very reasonable to assume that whoever gideon is or whatever gideon is is uh not the newborn baby i think you can at least ask that even if that even if that ends up being the case i think you can reasonably like was was that like it's sure it's just i would want to know as gideon (laughs) it's so funny to me because yeah they're like not to be like uh the gender binary but like (laughs) Gideon's not typically a name given to girls, and I just think that it's so funny that they're like, ah, here's this female child in this pouch. Obviously, her name is Gideon, because that's the only thing her mom said, and moms can't think about anything else. 
Which, in reality, when you first have a child <laughs> and you name that child, uh huh, they did not exist two days ago. Okay. <laughs> and you do frequently because of hormones and the fact that this child didn't exist two days ago. Sometimes people will be like, oh, what's your baby's name? And you're like, fuck if I know. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love my child so much. <laughs> oh, that's... That's really funny. It's when, it's for real. It's it's a real problem. <laughs> that I just realized when you were saying that you've said that before me before to us, <laughs> and I just realized that that when me and my wife end up having kids, Aaron will definitely call the kid Biscuit at oh, some yeah. point. Yeah, Biscuit being our dog, she has called me Biscuit multiple times. <laughs> I've called Arthur Enigma, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny <laughs> I guess that's my soapbox on let moms be whole people except in this book I realize why it's yeah. it's okay here but it is it is kind of funny to think about the, and the way that it's done here is intriguing and in the like it's just so funny that everyone's like obviously this baby's name is Gideon when you're like who would come to that conclusion it's wild that's why I feel yeah. like this is the first joke of many oaks. <laughs> oh, but, there are. I feel so. like there was definitely a joke earlier in this chapter. Probably. Uh, there was a line in, I guess, when she's meeting Crux that, quote, Crux advanced like a glacier with an agenda. And I think that line is Pratchett level humor. I. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So funny to me. Still, I, I that phrase lives rent free in my brain. I, I love that Gideon uses humor as a coping mechanism. Gideon is such a funny character. She's, she's got great jokes. Oh yeah, <laughs> and Many some of them really really bad, bad ones. Yeah, <laughs> but I really she's got that. great um... bad jokes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I also I'm glibbing. Uh, I was I was going to say I was going to have the readers get all right, dear dear listener. We don't have readers; we have listeners. Dear yeah. listener, I want you to try and think about how the name I glamine is spelled. It's just so dumb because I, I don't it. I don't know how I thought it would be spelled, but here is how it is spelled: A I G L A. M E N E. I glamine. I glamine. I love her. Just first of all, She's right great. out, right out the gate. I I love disappointed mentor trope. I mm-hmm. I love her. Uh, I also love that this book passes the Bechdel test on page twenty. Good job, book. Yeah, there's a lot of passing of the Bechdel tests in this book. Oh, so much. But I was very excited when it happened so early on. I was like, this this bodes well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm absolutely like, yeah, we're not the Bechtel test or we're Bechtel testers, so we don't need to talk about it a lot. But it no, is but I love it. how it's... many how many pieces of media fail the Bechtel test, even things that I would say are not that treat their female characters well, even if yeah. it's not a feminist work. It's it's really yeah. something. Is there anything else you wanted to say about chapter one? Uh, no, I mean, just to touch again on the mystery of, it's described as Gideon was the 201st child of the ninth house. Oh, yeah. When she was found, adopted. And so 
the mystery of Gideon doesn't explain any of the circumstance, but um, explaining that uh, within a few years, it was down to only Gideon and then two characters we will meet later, one of which being the heir of the house were the only ones left over. That mystery is huge. We also get some more references to mysteries in here because this first mm-hmm. chapter is extremely dense. Found out something, knew something she should not have. I think around age 10. And so there's just, there's a lot of mysteries and things going on here. The ninth house is a secretive place, it turns out. And, uh, what? what? (laughs) A place that is set up as a cult? Has secrets? (laughs) The, yeah, uh, it's really interesting to me. Do we talk about this in later episodes? Or should we talk about it now? The definition of cult? Uh, we do talk about it later. Okay, yeah. then we'll table that discussion, because we also don't know much about the Ninth House in relation yeah, to the no. other planets yet. No, not yet. And it's just, it feels very culty right now, is, is what I meant. Yeah. Alright, so shall we move on into Chapter 2? Yep. Uh, you'll learn real fast that all my recaps are short. <laughs> so, yep. Chapter 2, recap. Gideon is finally confronted by her last obstacle, Harrow. Uh, bone fight ensues. Gideon loses. <laughs> I I really like this. Uh, I thought it was really 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 cool uh, and cinematic and everything. I I enjoy that the payoff of uh, in the first chapter. There's a pretty significant amount of time spent on Gideon like searching the room that she's waiting in uh, and every nook and cranny. And you're like, hey girl, why are you doing that? And then we immediately find out it's because Harrow is <laughs> horrifying. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was going to say something else in the first chapter. Uh, I think we get a description of Gideon, like, checking all the walls and Mm -hmm. checking the floor. Mm -hmm. And then the floor is, like, nearly solid stone or, like, it's very densely packed earth. So she, like, kicks at it a few times and then decides there can't be anything in there, right? Yeah. Well, Harrow shows up and basically offers, if I this is me going off memory, uh, offers Gideon a deal, which is basically, like... We're going to fight if you when takes off all of her bone stuff. Harrow mm-hmm. shows up. She is like five foot nothing. She's 16 at this point. <laughs> She's just a baby. And covered in bone jewelry. She's extremely scary, even though we don't know why yet. Very grumpy. Harrow Hark, no adjustments. She, and so she's like, I challenge you to a fight, Gideon. I'll remove all my bone stuff, which lets me do necromancy. And Gideon's like, are you serious? And, and then uh, if... Harrow wins. Gideon has to go back and check in on... I mentioned that there is a mass bell summoning everyone for something Mm -hmm. important that Gideon didn't explore. Um, Harrow's like, you have to come back for that if I win. If you win, you can just get on the shuttle and leave. And Gideon's like, that's it? And Harrow's like, that's it? So Gideon's like, okay, and then charges. Because surely, since Arrow gave up all of her bone stuff, and Gideon already checked the room, that there would be nothing. No, Harrow being an absolutely crazy bitch, uh, dug (laughs) through that super hard-packed earth that Gideon decided there's no way anything is in, planted bone fragments deep in there, and then grew those up and KO'd Gideon immediately. It's just so cool. I also love that she's like, it's a fair fight. No, it's not. Yeah. It's, uh, 
it was going always going to be an unfair fight for somebody. We thought it was in Gideon's advantage, surely, because that's also this is also a subversion. We all we saw in the first chapter was how competent Gideon is. Look mm-hmm. at all the things she's doing to escape. She's already got a key to get out of the her restrainer cuff. She's climbed up an entire like two hundred plus stairs in the absolute darkness. She's gotten there before anyone else. The, she's also significantly younger than the two people sent after to restrain her. And it seems reasonable that she could have beaten Crux in a fight. Maybe Iglamine as well, considering she can barely move, even though she did teach Gideon the blade. And so all we have from so far is that Gideon is an extremely competent character. And I said, Gideon, last chapter was all about Gideon's competence. That remains mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. So what happens here does not feel like, oh, Gideon's not actually all that. Or Gideon's not actually competent. It just feels like, oh, be oh, very Hera's afraid scary. of Harrow. <laughs> yeah. Be very afraid of Harrow because she is incredibly single-minded. And yeah, that's... Yeah. I love Harrow as a character. She's remarkably complex. Right now, she's just scary. Right now, and... she's just scary. And I, I love her so much. <laughs> I also love that in the setup for it, when she's like removing all of her bone jewelry, uh, Aglimine is like don't disrespect your lady like this. And Gideon's like, nah, man, I want my freedom. <laughs> but I feel like yeah. what's actually happening is Aglimine is like, don't embarrass yourself, honey. <laughs> I think you could read it either way. I don't know if Aglamine necessarily knew and this was like a don't be dishonorable like this yeah. thing. I, I think you could read it both ways. And I, I feel like you could. Valid. I, I feel like Aglamine knows both of them well enough where she could have seen that this is exactly where it was going. That's very Um, true. But yeah, either way it's perfect. So it's fine. You have to assume things like this have happened before. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Especially if we're like, okay, there are three kids here, two of them. This is not the first time that they fought like this. Like, yeah. Yeah. And we, we we quickly, we will meet Autis next chapter, who is the third kid. And he is, (laughs) The way he is, yeah. He is extreme. He is a dough ball of a human being. (laughs) He's a very minor character in this book, and I love him. (laughs) Same, yeah. (laughs) He's just big and sad. (laughs) Um, But yeah, yeah. Gideon, it is canon that Gideon and Arrow have fought a lot in their leading up to this point in their childhoods, which we will talk, which we will hear us talk about more as the book continues on. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time we see, and we see Harrow is scary, and we see Gideon is not as scary as Harrow. Couple things I have written down here. When I heard Nonagesmus, I thought it was two <laughs> words. It's spelled N O N A G E S I M U S. I thought it was like Nona space Jesmus, like J E S, etc. I was yeah. incorrect. Arrowhawk Nonagesmus is how Moira Quirk, the audiobook narrator, uh, always says it. It's funny because I read it as non-age Smiths, and I thought it was funny and on the nose because they're necromanders. So if they don't have to, <laughs> they don't have to age if they don't want to. <laughs> I don't know if that's accurate, but I thought it was funny. <laughs> I mean, it's. That's the fun thing about art is even if the meaning isn't intended, uh, it can mean more things yeah. than the author intended it to mean. Yeah. Uh, I think it is. I think it's mostly based on the fact that most of the houses um, 
the nobility of them have the number of the house in the naming scheme. So being the ninth yeah. house, Nona. Not, yeah. And yeah. I, and I yeah. understand that intellectually, uh, especially now that it has been pointed out to me, but <laughs> I'm still amused by my initial read. Hey, I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong. <laughs> oh no, it's not right, but I'm okay with that. All right. You can say you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, I'm, it's wrong, but I'm okay with that. Also, there's a lot of banter going on here. And it's not flirty, but it is. Everything's yeah. flirty. Any kind of flirty. Any kind of connection is flirty in this day and age. You know, I think I really with Gideon uh, a lot, because I don't think that Gideon's able to talk to somebody without flirting with them, and I relate to that. I feel seen by this character. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, female characters, yes. I mm-hmm. I think she's I think Gideon is low key flirting with all the characters yeah. throughout the entire book. Male characters, no, but No, but she's less because so it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Which is nice because nowhere ever does it say Gideon is a lesbian and therefore <laughs> like it's just extremely obvious from the first sentence. Which and is this so is, good. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. this setting is extremely queer. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah doesn't even know how queer this setting truly is yet because we don't get into the, we don't see, we will see more in the next book. Uh, but I constantly throughout the book, I'm just like, is this character queer? And then we get an indication that, oh yeah, they're a little queer. Yeah, they kind of so have to be. everyone's <laughs> sexuality is not a commentary because it just seems that everyone is assumed to be pansexual. <laughs> I I love so much that like everyone knows <laughs> that Gideon's queer. Nobody cares. Uh the thing that they make jokes about is how much of a horn dog she is and mm-hmm. like her her stupid magazines they're like that's nasty man and she's like but have you read one? <laughs> like <laughs> It's really funny. Primo titties. <laughs> yeah. Like, they're not making fun of her because she's a lesbian. They're making fun of her because she's a, a horn dog. And yeah. perfect. <laughs> yeah. If Gideon was male, the conversation would not change a bit. No. Yeah. Just it's perfect. Uh, feminism it. in its purest form. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. <laughs> Uh, speaking of Gideon being a horn dog, at some point Gideon's like, what could you possibly offer me to get me to come back? And one of her bantering uh, suggestions is, Gideon, here's a bed of writhing babes. It's the cloisterites, though, so they're 90% osteoporosis. <laughs> <laughs> That's how Gideon talks, by the way, and it's of course stellar. It <laughs> oh, man. Such a horn dog. <laughs> Relatable. I love this chapter, too, it turns out. <laughs> Wait, are you about to tell me that you love all the chapters? I think I do. I think I really Weird. think I do. I'm going to go ahead and say that now. I love all these chapters, and now I don't have to say it again. There we go. You're going to say it every yeah, chapter, I'm pretty Probably. sure. I like that bit. You have this note written down. Uh, Threaten my house, disrespect my retainers, lie, cheat, sneak, and steal. Disgusting little cuckoo. It is one of those things in the list Gideon goes on and saying she was a little sorry for. It doesn't specify. <laughs> It doesn't specify which one. We're we're left to guess. My guess has been disrespect my retainers, but I'm not sure. I guess she uh, maybe disrespecting Iglamine. Yeah, that would that would make sense. She clearly has no problem disrespecting Crux. I mean, who would though? <laughs> yeah, 
back to the overall theme of this chapter. I love the bit where all the bones are like exploding out of the ground while the skeletons are exploding from nothing out of the ground. And I, the metaphors are useful and they're not like heavy handed. I like that. I'm not being spoon fed everything. (laughs) I know what's happening. You don't have to over explain it to me. I I really love that. Uh, It really fits with the writing in the world so far. It's more effective and engaging I love that they clearly hate each other, but there's also a history there, which is why I think they're flirting. (laughs) Uh, Because, like, they do almost feel like they respect each other, at least as opponents. Yeah, I think that's it. Oh, and that the fight was not fair, and that I'm glad it wasn't fair, because I want to know what's going on in that basement so bad. (laughs) (laughs) This is just the part of the D&D campaign where the DM steps in and is like, and then this really badass opponent knocks you out and drags you down into the dungeon, which you didn't yep. want to go into. Yep. And you're like, thank you, DM. <laughs> <laughs> Normally we don't like railroading, but this is okay. <laughs> exactly. I think that's all I have to say about chapter two, unless you have anything else. The only other thing I have to say is there's sort of... For the 2010s, I would say, probably, as a as a general rule, there was a lot of fantasy that had um, very physics-like magic systems, uh, sure. which is like a Brandon Sanderson trademark. Um, right. Brent Weeks does it when he's not doing Christian fiction labeled as fantasy on top of some other people. So that was really popular for a while, and I... Don't like it unless it's done well. I think Mm -hmm. if you spend a lot of time on your magic system, that's something you're not, that's things you're not spending on your characters. That's things you're not spending on the events happening as a whole. Right. When it's done well, it's a lot of fun. But Mm -hmm. when it's done poorly, I don't like it. Bone necromancy is extremely cool and makes pretty intuitive sense without anyone having to say, this is how it works. Yeah. I I don't need to know what the ins and outs when things are relevant. I assume I'll know about it. <laughs> like, yeah. and I mean in this book especially, Gideon doesn't know. Gideon's no. not a necromancer. Uh, she understands some of the stuff just by being around it so much. In the same way that I understand a lot of stuff about music just by living in Nashville my entire life. But I'm not a yeah. musician, and I do not. When Aaron starts talking about piano stuff, I do not understand <laughs> yeah. her. I'm like, you're so cute. I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, it is it is what it is. And so having having a magic system that is cool and intuitive without needing to be explained is really uh, great. Mm-hmm. And even, especially, we know that it's not magic in the sense of she can't just make bones out of thin air. We are shown in this scene that she has to have bones on her or nearby to grow, yeah. basically. Uh, so not only is it cool and intuitive, there's also a limit placed on it. And anyway, having read magic systems that uh, are have a lot of effort put into them that are not this intuitive, um, I just applaud that this book does not need to spend a lot of time on necromancy because I mm-hmm. think a worse book would have spent a lot more time explaining it and how it works. Because there's a lot of things about it that will become plot relevant. Yeah, and I, I really, again, just don't think that they need... It, it's not needed. We get exactly. it. Exactly. 
Yeah. Exactly. Like the way that it's described, we're like, okay, yeah, I don't need to know how. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's something about media that I think some people don't get is a lot of these there's some techniques, there's some styles, there's some elements that are really cool, but when they start getting placed into stories they don't need to be in, that's where things become a problem. And uh, if Gideon had a more, had a Brandon Sanderson magic system where we get lots of explanations, it would be a very, very different book. And I think you could maybe do it, but the book as it is doesn't need that. In the same way that in this chunk, we don't get a lot of description of daily life in Drooper. We don't get a lot of descriptions of the ninth house. A lot of these chapters are in this first nine are the shorter ones. Mm-hmm. Um, not a whole lot is going on. And I think a worse it would it would have been a worse story if we spent a lot of time in Drearbur learning all the details of the setting and what people are like there and all these 80 plus year old people that live because everyone's as old as shit here. Yeah. It is a credit that they were like, no, this book doesn't need any of that. Let's mm-hmm. just not have it in. The only thing that's in the book is what needs to be there because that's how storytelling should be. The little details, your brain's going to fill them in. Exactly. And it's, and it, which means that it will take on a unique life for everyone who reads it, but that's not a bad thing. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. prime example coming up in this next chapter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Stephen King's book on writing is one of my favorite books. It's half mm-hmm. Stephen King autobiography, half a guide on how to write. And mm-hmm. something he mentions, he has a section where he talks about how writing is a, is telepathy, basically. I say words, and then because of the words I say, you picture something in your head. Yeah. Uh, But he mentions, it's like, let's say I have a table in a room. All right, what's that table look like? He's like, you can describe that table in any sort of way, and maybe I, or I can picture that table in any sort of way. You reading it may picture that table in a completely different way. And I have to ask myself, does that matter? A lot of times it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have a table in the middle of the room most of the time, if it's a wood table, if it's a metal table, if it's a wood table gilded with gold, like uh, that was from the section I wrote last night that I just brought up that example. Um, but, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All those details, if they don't matter, don't put them in because it doesn't matter if the reader pictures the table as, you know, I don't know, furniture styles looking from like it's from the 1920s, looking like it's from the 1950s, looking like it's from modern times, looking like it's an Ikea piece of Sure. Like none of those things really matter unless they do, in which case, yeah, describe it, yeah. but you don't need to. Like it could be important for like scene setting or like telling you something about the person who owns the table. But past that, like, does it really matter? No, probably not. Exactly. Exactly. And I think authors who aren't as good as at prose get sucked mm-hmm. into that trap of needing to describe everything. I get sucked into that trap because I'm used to being a DM and having to describe everything in the room at least a little bit. Otherwise, the one thing in the room that players, I want my players to look in because they're treasure, everyone will go, okay, well, that table had a description to it and these five didn't. So we're going to go check out that one. But what about the chair? (laughs) It's always about the goddamn chair, let me tell you. And the rules are obviously completely different for visual arts. So, yep. (laughs) Visual art, well, not necessarily. We don't have to get into that. Um, All right. Chapter three. I, yeah. Yeah. Let's go into chapter three. Recap. 
Gideon is dragged into the depths of the ninth house to attend what can only be described as mass. I mean, yeah. yeah. Harrow reads a letter from the emperor summoning her and Ortis to the first house. People sob with joy. One guy literally dies. Um, it reads very cult. <laughs> Ortis and his mom, it, it's revealed at the end that they escape on Gideon's shuttle that Gideon had ordered. We also learn in this chapter that Harrow's parents are super dead and meat puppets, basically. She is literally weakened at burning her parents around with necromancy, <laughs> posing as the heads of the house. <laughs> Which is so funny. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's not. It's kind of tragic, but it's also really funny. It's both. Uh, and Gideon's just, like, infinitely amused, like, just eating up all the drama that's happening <laughs> throughout this whole chapter. Yeah. And again, I feel very seen by that. <laughs> For the record, the guy that dies, basically, Harrow announces that the Emperor has summoned her and Autis, who is her. Autis is spelled Ortis. I'm saying mm-hmm. it Autis because Moira Quirk is, I guess, I assume British. And so that's how she pronounces it in the audiobook. Tamsin Muir is a Kiwi who lives in England, in the UK. Mm-hmm. So maybe, presumably, that's a similar pronunciation that was in her her head. I'm not going know. to correct you on saying Ortis, uh, but I am going to say Autis, which That's is fine. just extremely confusing to our listeners, which is why I chose to explain it there. <laughs> the guy that dies, Harrow reads the letter. It's it's an extreme holy honor because the emperor is not just their political ruler. He's also their mm-hmm. god, as we touched on in the opening sentence. So it's like, oh, my God, our lady received a divine letter. A, a God told her to do something. This is so great. This is so cool. And again, because everyone here is a billion years old, his heart can't take the excitement and he dies. It's not like he gets ritually sacrificed or anything. Oh, yeah, no, that, I guess that is important. I'm assuming people have read this. I I just think it's so funny that that one guy is like, <laughs> and just pass, literally passes away. Um, I also, so this is what I was talking about with like, your brain filling in things. Uh, when Gideon's brought into this room, we get a really nice description of like this big, like cavernous room, basically with like glowy stuff on the ceiling. And in my brain, that looks like stained glass windows and a like Catholic cathedral, uh, like, like Gothic style, you know, that's not important. Uh, but I think it's really lovely <laughs> that we, we can all have the space to like interpret things differently. Yeah, well, also, I mean, this is where you you nailed the Catholic imagery immediately. This and so much Catholic imagery. Like, we will imagery. go on. There is yeah. so much Catholic I- imagery in this book. And yeah. specifically, I'll talk about it in a, in a, in a podcast or two. I'm not going to go mm-hmm. in depth on it here. But this book specifically has things that are very unholy Catholicism sort of bent. And so I think mm-hmm. you've absolutely hit the nail on the head here from a very early chapter in that uh, this is kind of the world we're in. This is the stuff we're getting. Keeping that Catholic imagery in your head as you listen to some of the stuff going on and reading it uh, is, I think, a great idea. And maybe that's just a read that I had early on because having an art degree from a Bible college, you talk about the Catholic Church Weird. a lot. <laughs> Because a lot of art was funded by the Catholic Church for, like, hundreds of years, basically. So, like, maybe other people didn't have that read. But, yeah, it it was an immediate one for me. That did continue through the rest of the book, so. 
Sarah, I'm trying Get to give you flowers. <laughs> Please stop rejecting them in very academic terms. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Yeah, so we meet Autis. Autis is uh, Hero's Cavalier, which is a position of some renown and honor. I don't think we get a lot of description as to what a Cavalier does yet, but, but, but as uh, Sarah said, the letter is summoning uh, Hero and her Cavalier. So Autis is described, he is like a 30-year, I mean, he's not 30, he's probably in his mid-20s, but uh, he's basically described as a, as a man-child. Uh, his mom kind of steers everything he does. Autis is described as wide and sad, which is A, very funny, and B, very picturesque, because I am picturing <laughs> multiple people yeah. in my head right now for Autis. More more Otis dunking. Uh, Otis was basically a morbid donkey, uh, and coupling him with Harrow had been like yoking a donut to a cobra. <laughs> Why? Why not? I love it. Well, it's uh, it's perfect. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> yeah, uh, a couple. There's not much more in this chapter. Um, we get Harrow's parents' names, which are not super important to us. But her dad's name, I wrote down, is the Reverend Lord Priam Hyatt Nonius Vianus. And my note is that that is, I'm pretty sure, impossible to say. Gonna have to agree because I'm not I don't know try. if that's the correct pronunciation. I don't really care. It's not. It doesn't matter. And yeah, they'll, as Sarah <laughs> mentioned, the last thing that happened is Autis and his mom escape on the shuttle that Gideon was meant to escape on. They immediately shirk yeah. their duties, and uh, Gideon is sad because her escape path is gone. <laughs> and I, I love how it's like presented too, because Gideon's like, "Oh, I see what you did. You signed that contract in your mom's name so that I can't tell anyone that she's dead." Uh, and Harrow was like, "Oh, I didn't even think of that. Uh, your shuttle's gone. <laughs> it's just so funny." But I also, but throughout this whole book, and like especially in the, these first couple of chapters, we're never once told that Gideon is intelligent. We're never once told that Harrow is intelligent. We're just given a lot of really smart things that they do and a lot of really competent things that they do. And from that, we can be like, oh, these characters are very good at what they do. They're very smart in at least this one area, right? And, like, never once do they do something. And then Mira comes in and is like, but don't worry, they're still the super-duper smartest person ever. Because, <laughs> like, <"Huh>, no. <laughs> then why do they keep doing stupid things all the time? But this is, like, not that. It makes, it was, it was very meaningful to me to read a good book. <laughs> After reading a book that I hated yeah. so much. <laughs> and I have a whole lot of feelings about Harry. Yeah, uh, Mira is really... She most of her characters who are intelligent, even in the setting, also have major flaws. Harrow is presented late yeah. soon we will learn that Harrow is presented as kind of a necromantic prodigy. Um she is extremely good at it. Mm -hmm. And yet we also learn that she mm -hmm. has several blind spots. Uh that does not detract from the fact that she's very, very good at necromancy and generally very, very intelligent, but she's still a sixteen year old who there's things she does not mm -hmm. know. As we already mentioned, Gideon, very competent, is not a necromancer and doesn't really seem to be a scholar in oh. general. Um, that's a flaw with her character. 
uh, or her. Yeah, yeah she's, she's Johnny Bravo. Bravo. <laughs> we'll meet other intelligent characters. Uh, yeah. There's another character thing of one of my favorites who he's very, very, very smart. And he's also a cinnamon roll and not particularly good with people in a like guile sort of way. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I love him. Uh, and so, <laughs> and yet all of these characters come across as very intelligent and they have these kind of like, Oh, you're very, very good at this. You're good at this. You're good at this. You're good at this. You're not good at this, but we don't have mm-hmm. someone like, no, don't worry. Don't listen. Don't think all of these things this person's doing is stupid because he's actually very smart i promise it's just it's good writing it's good characterization and i have a lot of feelings about harrow once again it awe hate confusion Mm -hmm. i don't really know but um but i love her (laughs) i'm good chapter four (laughs) recap gideon mopes for a while she is very good at moping uh <laughs> mopes for a while before being summoned to the catacombs to talk with Harrow and Iglamine. Iglamine, yeah. Iglamine. She's informed that she will be training as a cavalier uh to take the place of Ordis and accompany Harrow to the first house. Uh Gideon refuses at first, but Harrow promises her freedom, so she kinda has mm-hmm. to go. <laughs> Harrow is very um yep. manipulative. <laughs> yeah, she is. Uh, Side note, uh, this is the chapter where I start mentally chanting East Lovers. So (laughs) So let's talk about romance and how we view it for a second. Because I had this discussion with Erin a few weeks ago. Mm Erin, when she reads a book, the romance, if there's not a romance, she's not really interested most of the time. And she she focuses mostly on that romantic aspect of it. I can always take and take or leave romance in fiction. Also I, I love a well-done romance. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that. But, like, I would rather not have a romance at all than a bad romance. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. No, I fully agree. Uh, I I do I do like a good romance, but I, I don't think that it's always necessary either, no. And it's it's not like a hill for me to die on like it it's not a deal breaker for a book but this would make a great enemies to lovers and i will not be accepting criticism on that not arguing with you also it should probably here be noted that at the time we are recording this the last book in the series electo the ninth has not been released so there's a lot of stories that I don't know how they end at this mm-hmm. point. <laughs> so I'm like, so like, okay, maybe I That's don't fair. know if those characters get together or not, Sarah. So <laughs> there are also a lot of stories that I don't know yet because I've only read. Yeah. This so. One. <laughs> uh... That's that's all. I don't have anything to yeah. say because I don't know more than much more than you. That's fair. Uh, I I really I don't think that this counts. Uh, I just think it's funny that my brain was immediately like the romance <laughs> that is in the book is enough for the book is what I will say. Yeah, I agree. I agree. This chapter is a very long. I just have a couple quotes written down first of which is low a destructed mm. ass which i just think is funny and then <laughs> your heart is a party for five thousand yep. nails which is an excellent shakespearean style uh this and would also be a great rap line oh yeah uh, the one quote that I have for this chapter is, while we were developing common sense, <laughs> she studied the blade. 
And just a note on the memes in this book. I love so much that I know the memes and I think they're funny, but I also love so much that the specific memes placed in the book, I feel like will age well because uh, they make sense in context. You don't have to know the meme to get the That's joke, true. you know? Yeah. Even if you don't know that meme, uh, the lines is fine. It's not really, it's, it's still kind of funny because we're doing common sense and she was doing things with her sword. Like, even if you don't know the meme, that's still, there's an element of humor enough that makes the line work. And if you know the meme, then it's a lot funnier. Mm -hmm. Some memes are just timeless, you know, literally (laughs) at Kilroy. (laughs) That's all I got. Chapter five. Um, our duo receives a second letter from the emperor. They are going specifically to the first house, which Gideon is disappointed by since the first house planet is empty. Apparently. Uh, Gideon complains that uh, since there's going to be nobody there but necromancers, their cavaliers, and some old priest, why does Gideon have to be traditional? Why does Gideon have to wear face paint and be forced into the uh, nun robes and wield a rapier instead of her preferred uh, longsword? And Harrow basically says there are 10,000 years of tradition. I don't care. And that's basically how it goes. Despite her protest, Gideon is forced to wear skull face paint and the creepy nun robes. <laughs> Again, we got some magazine jokes in here and Gideon says, I read them for the articles. And I think that's so funny. <laughs> that like, in universe, this is the Playboy <laughs> magazine. Uh, and again, like, I just love that everyone jokes about her being horny. Not that she's mm-hmm. gay. Yeah. Yep. It's not that's a very long chapter. That's all I have to chapter. say about this chapter, yeah. really. No. Uh, in fact, when I took my notes originally, I forgot to take cha- or I forgot to take notes on either this one or the last one. I don't know. Excellent. <laughs> I don't I have any notes them, for the so. next chapter. So, <laughs> chapter six re- recap. <laughs> Basically, Gideon training montage because that that's what it is. Uh, we do get the line, "Your hands are sisters, not twins," which made me cackle out loud. I literally wrote, "I cannot breathe." <laughs> Yeah, and I I just like that the memes pull you further in rather than like breaking immersion. And then I also uh, made this or declared this flirting <laughs> the chapter, and that <laughs> Gideon is not funny, but she thinks she's funny, so then we think she's funny, which uh, again I feel seen by. <laughs> just to your point, I did not. I was unfamiliar with the "your hands are sisters, not twins" being a meme, and I didn't. You know, I didn't think anything of the line. I was just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And then I kept reading. (laughs) Oh, would you like to know? Because it's actually, it's really funny. Uh, It's from like a makeup tutorial about filling in your eyebrows. And the line is, remember, your eyebrows are sisters, not twins. And I don't know why I think it's so funny, but. Apparently Tim's and Mira Um, agrees. (laughs) I mean, and and it can apply to so many things, uh, including sword fighting, apparently. Yeah. It makes a lot of, well, it makes a lot of sense here specifically because, as previously mentioned, Gideon has mostly trained with the two-handed longsword, whereas now she is forced to train yeah. with the traditional cavalier uh, equipment of a rapier and an offhand weapon. Usually a knife, but in Gideon's case, since she is being forced to experience a lifetime of training in weeks, I assume. I don't have the time span written down before they leave to the first house. But uh, it's not very long, and so uh, they do knuckles. Uh, She's she's got offhand like 
Asestus instead, uh, which yeah. is a very cool and also where your hands are sisters, not twins, especially makes sense here because one hand there's a sword and the other hand is brass knuckle. Mm-hmm. So yes, so first badass. of all, extremely <laughs> badass. Uh that I want that to be my next D D character. Please. Chapter seven. Recap. Gideon and Harrow arrive at the first house. We are introduced to teacher and several of the houses, at least visually. Like we get a visual first impression of them. Uh, there are a few holdups with some of the shuttles being the third and the seventh. And I think the ninth also. The ninth being that they were expecting or just not Gideon. And then we discover that the third is because they brought three people instead Ooh. of their two allowed. Uh, and then the seventh being that uh, the necromancer was having a medical episode because she be sick. And I love her. (laughs) I believe we also get a little um, medical episode on the shuttle floor where uh, the necromancer of the seventh house, Dulcinea Septimus, arrives and then immediately passes out or something. She like immediately swoons into Gideon's arms. (laughs) Yeah, literally she swoons and Gideon runs over to catch her. It is... She the archetypal meat cute. <laughs> Gideon is in a, cho- a chokehold literally immediately. <laughs> like, yeah. full on simping, um, which, same, so it's fine. Um, Cupid's got her in a chokehold. She does, yeah. She, she, she there. Um, also, <laughs> Gideon's stupid glasses. So, like, as. <laughs> you mean. <laughs> The aviators she's wearing on the cover of the book. The aviators <laughs> that she was wearing on the cover of the book, she whips them out like it's the funniest bit of physical comedy, and she is right. And, <laughs> and Harrow is like so done with her, and I love it so much. Uh, uh, I also love the exchange that we get when Gideon's like still, I think she's still holding Dulcinea. Um, but teacher says, Oh, lady, you should not have come. And then she immediately responds with, but isn't it beautiful that I did? And I think that is either very poignant and lovely or because um, she's it's a dying girl, like choosing to live her life or really stupid because <laughs> she has no idea what's about to happen to her uh, or both. Probably both. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dulcinea Septimus is has a terminal disease. I don't know if we learn it here immediately or not. No, we don't. Um, and Just teacher that she's really this. sick. Yeah. Teacher being uh, the head priest of Canaan House, he <laughs> greets everyone as they arrive in their shuttles. Um, yeah. And he is an extremely old guy named Teacher. That's pretty much all you need to know. And I love him. Already. Yeah, teacher. <laughs> teacher is great. The only note I have here other than what is for Protus Allowus. Uh, he is described as he looks like a collection of lemons in a sack, <laughs> which is very funny to me. It's very funny. I should probably also note, since we are re-recording this and uh, we've already read the book and done this podcast once, our recaps of these chapters are a lot more sparse than they would be, mm-hmm. than, they, than they will be for the future. They get a little chunkier, um, even mine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, not just the recaps, descriptions, I mean, are going over each chapter. We have a lot more to say about them uh, in the future. Perhaps too much to say. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe don't we know. not have the podcast be almost three hours. There is just but... a lot going on in the first 
like there's a lot going on after this first chunk. Mm-hmm. I don't fault it. Are you ready for chapter eight? Uh, I am. I am ready for chapter eight. The only other thing I was going to say is that getting me to stop talking about storytelling is extremely difficult. Oh, and I think even that's if fine. I, try, I probably can't. So I think that's part of this. So it's okay. Chapter eight. Okay. Chapter eight. Recap. Everyone is ushered into the house, which is dilapidated and empty. We are introduced to two more priests, one of them using they-them pronouns, uh, and they are told of their task, which is basically explore and learn, and they are given one rule, which is do not go through any doors that you don't have permission to go through. It's so funny. (laughs) At the end of his little spiel, somebody's like, well, what do we do? And he's like, well, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Teacher. Yeah, they're they're all here to become lictors. This is what Harrow has been invited. Mm -hmm. Lictors being the immortal liches that are in direct service to the Emperor. Mm -hmm. Um, Apparently, the initial batch of lictors has been uh, lost over time. I don't know if we learn that now or later. but uh, I I think we do already know that. Because they're invited to replenish. Yeah, Um, or at least join the lictoral ranks, which is a huge honor, because if Harrow succeeds, she will be immortal. Yeah. And then, so in this scene, it's like, teachers like, or someone asks, or teacher says, like, how do you become a lictor? And teacher says, I don't know. I'm not a lictor. I don't know how to become one. And they're, uh, like, all shook. (laughs) It's great. We get some really good quotes in here. Like the first house has been a bit, had been abandoned and breathlessly waited to be used by someone other than time. I, I just, that's gorgeous. Um, the house itself feels like a character at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's so lovingly described. <laughs> and then also just a side note on androgynous priest. I have a lot of feelings about this because normally when you have a, gender non-conforming or a non-binary character in really any kind of media up until recent history uh they're, they're just like a robot <laughs> like like people can't be non-binary only robots that have no concept of gender and like there are a lot of children's shows now that are subverting that which i really appreciate but it was also nice to see it here yeah i remember when you first brought up this point when we initially recorded the podcast i was mm-hmm. like well i know lots of non-binary characters and then i saw and thought about it and i'm like hmm, they are all robots they're or aliens, all robots they? <laughs> yeah robots and, are alien like they're othered in some way um mm-hmm. which, and oftentimes yeah. yeah not othered in the like these people are weird and we don't trust them since but they are yeah. not human yeah, uh, which can lead to this is this person's not human and we don't trust them uh, pretty easily. Yeah. But yeah, I think the only other book that I've read that had an like explicitly NB character was Mooncakes, which is a really cute graphic novel. Yeah, they're they're usually just a sentient object, uh, and I really love that. On top of normalizing sexuality in this book gender is also normalized quite a bit or like gender expression and exploration is also at least on this very small level normalized because Gideon's not like oh is that a boy or a girl she's just like I I don't know (laughs) and it doesn't matter (laughs) yeah I uh when I said early on that queerness is the norm in this setting not unusual I was not just talking about sexuality I was also including that gender I don't think we get another non-binary character other than this priest in this book. Not in this book. But 
I mean, maybe, but I don't think so. Well, we'll have this conversation in depth later on, Sarah. Okay. Later on in real life, you don't know this, what I'm referring to and will not for some time. So are you trying to come out to me? And I'm sorry. (laughs) That wasn't funny. No, I, uh, I am. Listen, I am blissfully slash boringly (laughs) slash disappointingly both cis and straight. Uh, When we first started dating, Aaron was like, but are you sure you're not a little bisexual? And I said, Aaron, I'm not. <laughs> and I, you know, I, like, oh, I, have, I have tried to explore. I have tried to explore that aspect to see if it is there sans repression. And I can honestly say that I am, this is me coming out to you now as straight Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> which in our friend group, you do have to do. So uh, <laughs> I am the token straight guy. I'm yeah, pretty sure, which it, is fine. <laughs> that's okay. Good for chapter nine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. All right. Chapter nine. Uh, Recap. Mm -hmm. Gideon wakes up to no Harrow. Harrow is gone. Uh, But so many notes from Harrow instructing her of various things, including not to talk to anyone. Uh, I get the distinct feeling that Harrow is deeply embarrassed by Gideon. (laughs) She wanders around the house and finds a pool, a training room, and a hidden secret door that is locked. uh, So it is against the rules to go in the door. Uh, She hides the door, and it does not seem like she knows why she's hiding the door, but she does it anyway. Yeah, she, like, puts a mirror or something in front of it. Yeah, or, like, like, pulls, like, a little bit of a curtain or something over it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, I pictured that there was, like, a tapestry hanging in front of it, for whatever that's worth. Um, She also accidentally eavesdrops on the third house, which is the one that has three people instead of two people. Uh, She kind of like sinks back into the shadows. And after the conversation, the smaller, paler twin, she's not smaller, uh, but the paler twin looks directly at Gideon and tells her that eavesdropping is a dangerous move. And in that moment, we all became afraid of Iantha. (laughs) Iantha. One day I will get you to say Yante's name correctly. I have something very shameful to admit, and it's that the first time I ever read this name, it was in the Court of Thorns and Roses series, which I read in a vacuum, so nobody ever corrected me on name pronunciation for literally anyone, and that's why I'm stuck. The other thing is that maybe that name is pronounced like that in the Court of Rose and Thorns series. I <laughs> yes. have no one not knows. read those. <laughs> I've not read those books. Aaron recently has. And uh, from Aaron telling me about it, the names in those books are generally either A, bad, or B, ripped straight out of mythology. So Again, I like this chapter. <laughs> no, you're but supposed to say you love this chapter. I love this chapter so much because... Uh, Gideon's just be bopping around like super bored. <laughs> like what's going on? I don't know anyone here. It, it, it's a big mood. I love that Harrow is so extra because <laughs> all of those little notes <laughs> feel like the equivalent to somebody texting you like 15 times in a row uh, within like the same five seconds. You're like, Hey man, just one, one text is enough. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, and I'm so <laughs> afraid of Ionthe. Ionthe, the, the setup, did I, in this recording, did I talk about the setup of the Tridentariuses, Tridentarii? Uh, there are two necromancers and one cavalier, which was Yeah, not, not yet. 
Uh, we just mentioned that there were three of them. Yeah, so uh, the three of them are the twin sister necromancers, Corona Beth, who is described as a uh, very hot. tall, <laughs> extraordinarily beautiful and charismatic person. She is the queen of everything. Her really? twin, Ianthe, <laughs> is described like her, but less. Uh, like the color has been sucked out of her specifically. The saddest description. <laughs> Yeah, but as we can, but that does not mean Ianthe is not terrifying, as we learn from the fact that she knows Gideon is there for whatever reason. And then their cavalier, uh, Nibiria's turn, aka Babs, who is basically their punching bag. Uh, he <laughs> likes to try and build himself up, uh, and the two sisters uh, team up to tear him down verbally at every moment. That's really all we need to know at this point. Yeah, yeah. I, I this chapter is really just a lot of setup for the house, um, which is so spooky. And again, lovingly and tangibly described. The pool bit reminds me of uh, Fox Hollow Farm, which is uh, <laughs> a reference to a serial killer. Uh, it's very. I it just there's nothing spookier than a, an empty pool. I feel like mm. there are a lot of spooky things that are spookier than an empty pool, but that that one's just so creepy uh for no discernible reason and i i'm also really weirded out that there are no ghosts where are the ghosts <laughs> like we know that they exist because mm -hmm. we know that gideon's mom's spirit was dragged back to be interrogated we know that ghosts exist where are they <laughs> a good question apparently where are the ghosts who knows can you say what this note that you wrote right here at the end. Can you just say that? So, <laughs> For the benefit Ianthe, of everyone. they tried in Taria. <laughs> Thank this, you. This is how Ianthe talks no. in the audio book. Of course she does. She's just very, oh, whatever this is, clearly looking down on you. <laughs> Ianthe is one of my favorite characters in this series, and uh, that's all I have to say about that at this time. <laughs> this is where we start to get... Uh, I learned this because this was not obviously in the audiobook version, but there's some um, font cues in here. Uh, Harrow has a very specific way of writing. Notes, handwritten notes from Harrow have a certain font to them, mm -hmm. so Which we get characterization... <laughs> that way yeah it's like simultaneously prim but also slightly it's it, it reads like a hot topic kid wants to write cool that's yeah. what Ianthe, what harrow's handwriting looks like yeah um the second thing we get is that this is the first time we interact with the fourth house uh the fourth house being the they're described as awful teens isaac and sean marie who are 13 and 14 um gideon is has a huge aversion to them because again they are 13 and 14 and uh they they whisper to each other and they shrink the text is shrunk <laughs> in the book and magnus, uh, no no magnus, magnus no. no don't tell her that <laughs> I think this is also where we meet Magnus for the first time. Yeah, it is. Who, oh, yeah. I love him so much. Spoilers. Yeah, I love uh, every character in this book for different yeah. reasons. And some of them, I yeah. hate them. And that's why I love them. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Magnus is the Cavalier of the Fifth House. He's an older guy. I picture him as having a huge mustache. 
I don't know if that's actually his description or not. I, does he really even get a description other than like... I don't know. I, I love him. It doesn't matter. <laughs> if we had been professional podcast, read, reread this chunk of text before we uh, recorded on it nah. like we're doing right now, <laughs> then perhaps we would know... We do do that for future episodes, for the record, everybody. So if you're oh, yeah. feeling yeah. unmoored and confused, uh, I go into way too much detail describing what happens in said chapters. So and that's okay. Look more, forward more to that question mark. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, we meet Magnus. Basically, what happens is Gideon goes to eat breakfast, and because Harrow is gone exploring the house, and inside are. Magnus and the kids of the fourth house. Magnus comes over to Gideon and basically introduces himself. Gideon has been instructed to act as if she's under a vow of silence Mm -hmm. and so does not speak to him and also kind of basically has a moment of social panic. She's like, I've never met anyone new in my entire life. What do I do? Oh God, I'm not supposed to talk. I'll fall back on. (laughs) Just so good. Me too. Yeah. I feel very, yeah. very uh, seen by Gideon, apparently. <laughs> same, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah, that's that's all I really have. Um, I, I know they're described as terrible teens and we're supposed to be like, uh, terrible teens. But I I love it. They're just the sweetest babies. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I don't know if it's about at this in the former version of this podcast or the beginning of the uh, episode two, which will be released. But um, it's such a thing because Gideon is 18. Mm-hmm. We This was established in the first chapter. It is such an 18-year-old thing to find 14-year-olds as obnoxious. so <laughs> young and so obnoxious. Yeah. No, uh, it distinctly is, yeah. Yeah, it's it's very in character. The dread, the so-called dreadful teens, I think, do very little to actually be dreadful. Spoilers. <laughs> really, nothing. They're they're like goth punk kids. Like that's it. Yeah, yeah they're they are, and and it's purely in a style sense. Like yeah. I don't think they do anything other than become embarrassed by Magnus, who he later learned <laughs> serves as sort of an a surrogate uncle yeah. slash authority figure for them. Yeah, he's like a father there in a way. Mm. Yeah. Unless you want me to do Morianthe impressions, that's all I've got for that chapter. No, though I do like it. Yeah, I guess my general questions at this point were um, I'm still a little confused on her mom. Like, that's a huge mystery (laughs) there. Uh, I think I get a little too fixated on where her body is. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Also, I think that it's really funny that they're just using a bunch of skeletons to farm fields for leaks <laughs> okay makes sense to me <laughs> uh i really think that the curiosity the other houses are showing towards the two main characters uh who are draped in black and hiding their faces uh both under paint and for harrow she's literally veiled and gideon is wearing <laughs> goofy sunglasses i think that yeah, them hiding them their faces from the light and everyone being very curious about that is done very well. Like, when they're all brought into the house, everyone prays and the ninth house prayer is different. And everyone seems very intrigued by that, which we didn't really talk about earlier, but that's a thing that happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that Gideon not knowing how to talk to an outsider like we just talked about is really believable. <laughs> uh, and again, like, kind of builds that idea of 
cultiness. I was a little confused about why she didn't show more curiosity towards the other planet's cultures. Um, but I think that it's just that she's so unfamiliar that it's hard to pinpoint what to be curious about, at, at least at this point in the book. Uh, and uh, like you said at, at the top, I understand that this book isn't spicy, so I'm going to use the word smut very liberally right here, but it really is just a trash smut book that has the audacity of having a really good plot <laughs> and really good writing. And then my, my last thing is I think that the ne necromancy system is so fascinating uh, that even the healing is referred to as necromancy because mm -hmm. having played a lot of D&D, &D, that's a very new idea to me. Uh, and I mm -hmm. love it. <laughs> One of my D&D &D, uh, soapboxes is I think all healing show spells should be classified as necromancy. Yeah, I think uh, the first time I said They're that... They're abjuration instead, which doesn't yeah. make any fucking sense, because abjuration is putting up boards and preventing things from happening. <laughs> I not think, reversing uh, things that have already been done. The first time I, I brought that up, you said something about how it was light cleric uh, propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which I thought was really funny. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's really all I have here. And I think you're right, it would have been helpful if we had gone back and reread the first couple of chapters but I, I don't know um we said at the beginning that this is uh gonna be quick and yeah. maybe a little rough we just really if you're still listening to, to this re-record so yeah all know. of our uh well, i would probably say that all of our gideon the ninth podcasts are going to be slightly rough we were still finding our footing uh especially audio quality wise yeah and so we we now have a hand more of a handle on it. Uh, you probably can't tell from the content of this podcast, but uh, I feel I feel solid about things going forward. But yeah, um, the commentary, I I feel like we get well, I, we do get a lot more in depth on each chapter moving forward. Yeah, I think it's also just tricky doing Gideon the Ninth because there is really so much character work. And so many scenes, there will be like a paragraph that describe that has characterization of multiple characters going on. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very good writing. But it also means we either have to completely ignore a huge chunk of a lot of people's characters or spend a lot of time talking about it. Yeah. And that's a credit to the quality of the art. It's saying a lot with a little, mm -hmm. but it does kind of put us in this a little bit in the lurch. I, I've been thinking about it and I'm like, I feel like most books I read will be a lot easier to summarize. Yeah. I also just want to go ahead and note that like, there are so many characters in this book even already. Yeah. Uh, and they're all very distinct. So we like talked about at the beginning, how there's, that like cast characters at the beginning and how for the first few chapters I was ref referencing it a couple of times. And really after this section of the book, I stopped referencing it because I didn't need to <laughs> like all, all of the characters are very distinct uh, from each other and it's really lovely. Yeah. I do okay. think this book does a really good job of managing its big cast of characters because while there are so many characters, I think they do a really good job of kind of, introduce having those characters experienced in bunches mm -hmm. so the second house kind of has a personality in addition to the cavalier and the necromancer having a personality of their own 
the third house has a distinct personality in addition to Corona, Yanthe, and Babs having a personality of their own. Mm -hmm. The teens are basically exclusively referred to as a duo, but those two characters have a personality of all to their own. So your mind can chunk them because we know Harrow, we know Gideon, and then we know the second house, the third house, the fourth house, the fifth house, etc. Right. And so that helps until later as things go on, find things to distinct between the houses. And even the ones that have less of a role in the overarching plot, don't get as much screen time. We still kind of know what their deal is. Yeah. And, uh, which again, and there's so much going credit. on within each house as well. Like we just get a little taste of it between the fifth and the fourth. And then uh, with the third house, like there's a, there's a lot of inter-character, like, interpersonal relationships going on there that I'm very excited to see more of. <laughs> Not just in this book, but I'm sure it will continue into the other books. So. Yeah, thankfully, I think Gideon has the characters okay. of any of the books. Um, I don't know if that's entirely... Ch- I know it has more characters. I will say, this... People... A lot of characters in this book die, yeah. is all I'm going to say. Spoilers. Because, again horror come join us next time for maybe characters dying and pain uh, <laughs> campaign. yeah more just just pain from here on out <laughs> but in the best yeah. way it's a good book yeah right. that's that's the finish that's all i have that's all i have um so we covered chapters one through nine today mm-hmm. next time we cover chapters i think 10 through nine next time we cover chapters 10 through 19 you'll Mm -hmm. be joining us with that next time it's our past but it's your future uh (laughs) because time is wobbly uh, time is a weird soup (laughs) as they say yes yeah and that's all i have do we want an outro now we didn't have a script for the outro but i think we can do it off the cuff i I can't my socials are easy (laughs) no we have to say who we are and where you find us okay fine i know this is the thing you're least excited it's about my least favorite thing we're keeping all of this <laughs> yes we are okay. uh my name is my name is marcus Matheny. if you're interested you can find me on twitter i will not call it x i don't <laughs> care what elon musk says about anything but especially not that <laughs> um my twitter name is at ex marcus the spot uh, I don't use it very often, but I do plan to use it more in the future. Sure. Uh, before you, before you, the listener experiencing this, I will be planning on using it a little more. So, you know, justifying that follow, I yeah. guess. My Twitter's dead. Uh, I deleted it, but you can, I guess, go back and read all my tweets. Uh, cause I just deleted the app. Uh, but it's S Humphreys. Oh, I'm Sarah Humphreys. Um, but my Twitter is S Humphreys 95. And then you can find me on TikTok and Instagram at SB Humphreys art. Cause spoilers, I'm an artist. Um, and uh, yeah, I think all my stuff links together and like link tree. So I'll just leave it at that. What's link tree. Oh, you can like post a link in your bio that links to all your mm. other things so that because you can only post one link. Mm-hmm. So you post the link tree and when people click on it, it pulls up a bunch of buttons of all of your things that you're linked to. So yeah, <laughs> the, I don't ever use social media. It's for people. us content yeah. creators out there. <laughs> <laughs> I actually really do love making TikTok videos. It's really fun. So hey, that's what matters. Yeah. 
All right. Yep. Well, that's us. Um, follow us on those places, and we tune in next time for uh, Gideon's the ninth chapters, ten through nineteen, where yep. shit starts happening. So much uh, stuff. <laughs> shit starts coming, and it don't stop coming. Yep. Uh, all right. <laughs> Thank you for that. See y'all. We're signing off. Bye. <laughs>